0: Welcome to Liberty Unlocked. I'm your host, Don Watkins. This was an exciting episode for me. I've been a fan of John Stossel's work for really more than 20 years, and though we've met one or two times, this was really our first time to talk in depth. But one point that came up during our conversation that actually bothered me was a certain kind of hopelessness on John's part, that it's impossible to persuade most people of the value of liberty. And look, I sympathize with him. He spent the better part of 40 years being one of the most well-known critics of government control, and in many respects, things have gotten worse. And I imagine it's hard to remain optimistic under those conditions. But one of my principles is that when we don't see the result we want in the world, the question should be, how can we get better? Blaming other people for not being persuaded of our ideas It leaves us helpless, and it assumes that we've been optimally persuasive. I do not think that's true. I think that's very far from true. And one piece that's relevant to this episode is the issue of advocating a positive ideal. John's work is essentially negative, and this isn't a criticism of him. It's totally legitimate to have an intellectual division of labor where a journalist specializes in showing how government control is making our lives worse. But too often, people associated with the liberty movement have an essentially negative, even cynical view of government. Government messes up stuff, and so we want as little as possible. Like, their message amounts to little more than get the government out. But I think that's wrong on two levels. First, it's it's not the right way to think about government government should be seen as a positive force for good for protecting our rights and as an active agent for achieving that good it has to define and enforce objective laws if we're actually going to flourish that's important that's noble that's not easy it's a creative thoughtful process just one example like how should government how should government deal with infectious disease And if your view is just get the government out, that's wrong. And for a great analysis of how government should deal with this issue, I highly recommend my former colleague Ankar Gatte's white paper on COVID-19, and I'll link to that in the show notes. But there's a deeper or perhaps wider reason why trying to base a movement around something essentially negative is wrong. In a short essay I just published called If You Stand for Nothing, What Will You Fall For?, I argue that today's mess is the result of no one offering a positive ideal, and that when you don't offer a positive ideal, this actually lays the groundwork for really evil movements to gain power. Also linked to that in the show notes, but let me just read uh, a selection from it, because I think it really captures my core point. Evil movements are deeply nihilistic. They unleash destruction for the sake of destruction. But nihilists make up only a small proportion of any population, so how did nihilistic movements gain power? Through vague idealism and targeted opposition. Marx, for example, wrote volumes in The Evils of Capitalism. How much time did he spend explaining his ideal society and how it would work? You could fit that into a blog post. Communism gained influence by pointing to real injustices. There were plenty of non capitalists there were plenty in non-capitalist czarist russia and perceived injustices denouncing the world for failing to live up to a fantasy utopia and offering an essentially negative solution tear down the system what did communism achieve every time it succeeded in tearing down the system the mass murder of anyone who opposed the communists and the destruction of free thought and free trade and then skipping to uh, near the end The American Revolution, by contrast, did involve a negative, going to war with England, but it was essentially positive. The founders were inspired by thinkers who had a deeply worked out vision of how society, government, and law should operate. Deeper still, they had a positive vision of human life, a life based on reason, science, industriousness, and peaceful cooperation these positives were crystallized by positive ideals, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so they didn't just tear down the system, they built a new one, end quote. So I think the liberty movement, if it really is to be a movement, and if it really is to be for liberty, and if it really is to be effective, it has to start with a positive vision for human life, human society, and government. A few final notes. I'm recording this on July 6th, 2020, and this Friday, July 10th at 4 p.m. Eastern, I'm going to be holding the second of my bi weekly Unlocking Liberty Masterminds. And this is your chance to hear my latest thinking about persuasion, to ask questions about literally anything, and to get personalized feedback on your work. For details, go to donswriting.com and click on the Mastery tab. Last thing before we get to the interview. If you want to support the show, the best thing to do is sign up for the newsletter and get my free Persuasion Bootcamp email course at donswriting.com. You can also support the show financially by visiting libertyunlocked.com or clicking the link in the show notes. Every dollar goes to improving the show and helping us reach as many people as possible. Now, on to the conversation with John Stossel. Well, great. Uh, Thanks for coming on the show. So I can't actually remember a time when I didn't know about your work. I grew up during the 80s and you're always a fixture of 2020. But then I remember, I think it was 1999, you did a special on greed. And a year or so earlier is when I discovered Ayn Rand and other pro-Liberty thinkers. And there just had never been anything like this on TV where it was challenging the idea that business success was immoral. And I remember I recorded it on a VHS player that I must've, you know, worn down until it was frizzled. Uh, But the surprising thing to me to learn was that you, I mean, you became interested in pro Liberty ideas pretty late. Like you were already successful in your career as I understand it. And I'm really curious as to what, you know, where you started and how you got to becoming probably the most prominent media figure who is in favor of Liberty.
1: Well, that mostly says the sad truth that, There are just so few people in media in favor of liberty. And I wasn't when I started, you're right. I came out of college as a garden variety leftist taught by my professors that it's just terrible. The country has these problems and government programs now know how to fix it. We now know what works, they said. And I certainly believed that when I fell into my first reporting job in Portland, Oregon, and became a consumer reporter for no particular reason except that I'm a stutterer and I didn't wanna cover what everybody else was covering and so I tried this new beat. And I won the approval of my peers by bashing business, like all good leftists like to do for years
0: well wait before we go with the story i'm really curious so a stutterer who decides that you're going to go into tv reporting what was what was the motivation behind that choice
1: decides is really not the right word i was just looking for something to do before going to grad school i envied my peers in princeton who i know i want to be a doctor a lawyer and I didn't know what I wanted to do so I took every job interview that came to campus and one was a job with Seattle magazine to work in its circulation department but by the time I graduated uh, and I took it because hey free trip to the Pacific Northwest that's right. the most interesting offer I had Seattle magazine folded before I got there and they said you <laughs> want to work on our TV newsroom okay I'd never even watch television news. I never liked writing. I got my worst grades in English. But here I was doing research and writing for the anchors. And writing for TV is different. So because I didn't have my training in writing, uh, it really helped me because I had to learn through fear. I didn't want to fail. and. my mother had said you better work harder you'll freeze in the dark and i continue to believe i would freeze in the dark if i didn't succeed in this job and then my stuttering wasn't that severe and they pushed me to go on the air and to do some reporting myself and i as long as it was pre-taped i could cut the stutters out in editing and i could do things several times and i'm In terms of mental health, the worst kind of stutterer, I'm a closet stutterer. The happier ones are the ones who just go ahead and stutter, but many of us want to hide it and we substitute synonyms to avoid the words we feel we're gonna block on. And so this tormented me for a long time, but I liked the job and I wanted to succeed. And eventually I found the treatment after many failed ones that, helped to give me control over my speech. So it's hardly a
0: problem now. I'm, I'm curious if you years, could summarize what that is real quick, because I, like I coach a lot of people who want to become good communicators and it's not an uncommon problem to have tics and, and even more severe things. And I'm, I'm curious if there's, you know, something that uh, you found was helpful to you and to others.
1: I'll give you the background then. All my life I've had speech therapy with a speech pathologist at Northwestern University. I was once invited to to speak to the Association of Speech Therapists and they said, we really have good success with everything but stuttering. And as a person on TV with the problem, I got all kinds of offers from psychic healers (laughs) Uh, hypnotist, transcendental meditation. I tried just about all of them and nothing worked. But in my 30s, I heard about a program called the Holland's Communications Reconstruction Center Institute in Roanoke, Virginia. And they had a program that worked for some people. And what it basically is, is they reteach you how to make each sound. If you look at my voice on an oscilloscope it will graph a little bit blocky compared to your voice which is smoother even when I'm not stuttering that's nobody knows why maybe when we were young we hit sounds harder and somebody made fun of us and then we got up tight and we hit them even harder who knows but they put us in a little room and you made each sound and tried to keep the red light, the green light on the computer from turning to red, which is what would happen if you hit the sound too hard. So 20 minutes, and then you would go into a common room and talk to each other. You were supposed to talk two seconds per syllable. Now that's really slow. And that was just half a second per syllable. So it was so boring, but I was motivated and I did it all. And coming out of this program after two weeks, I could speak for the first time. It was wonderful. And I did a 20 20 piece on it to convince this is the cure finally for stutters. Since then, though, I have learned that a bunch of people took that training and relapsed. It did not help them. I think it's because you have to be super motivated to do all the boring practice. And I was, and it takes a long time to change habits like speech. So it doesn't work for everyone. And now I realize that another approach is just get comfortable with stuttering.
0: I really like this idea, though. We, we've seen it come up two times in 10 minutes about, like, how your motivation allowed you to, like, push forward into endeavors that are, you were not kind of, like, ideally suited to achieve. Like, and, I mean, that really feeds into freedom, right? Like, freedom is demanding. If you want something, you have to actually work to achieve it. So, I guess getting back to your journey now, you're in journalism, you're starting to get some success on TV. What does your trajectory look like from there?
1: I didn't know what it looked like. I wanted to get out of Portland to larger markets where you made more money and got more viewers for your work. And I got a job offer in New York City to be a consumer reporter. I worked at a local TV station there for eight years and um, was hired by ABC, Good Morning America in 2020 to be ABC's consumer reporter because I was winning awards for my work. I won 19 Emmy Awards. My peers in the media love bashing business. But after I did that for a while and paid attention, stayed on the beat, I noticed that the regulations that all of us were calling for, many of which got passed, they created a Department of Consumer Affairs in Oregon, partly because of my reporting. They didn't make any difference. We would do a story where we would send, take a, send a car to repair shops with a loose spark plug or TV with a loose tube at the time. And 18 of 20 would say, Oh, just loose tube, no charge. But two would say, Oh, we got to keep it for the weekend. And they'd give you a bill for $200 when we come back. I'd confront them and say, well, would you ever say blah when it wasn't true and claim this? Oh, no, we never said that. Oh, yeah, well, I've got the tape here. And that was then dramatic television to watch them squirm. And politicians would call up and say, that was great. We're going to pass a law based on what you did. And young John Stossel was so proud that these people were paying attention to me and they were going to oh, pass sure. the law. But two years later we did the same story and got the same results so it made me wonder well what's the department of consumer affairs doing and they had a dreary building where they sat around and drearily filled out forms and demanded that people get a license to do tv repair car repair to prove they knew what they were doing and to post bond and so Americans like this. We license drivers. We license dogs. Instinctively, we think it makes us safer. But all it really did was force people to hire a lawyer to understand the government forms uh, and to fill out and to spend a little more money. So it made every TV repair cost a little more. And if you were an immigrant or someone who didn't speak, clear English, you probably didn't even know about the rules or you just stayed underground, which isn't healthy. So it didn't do anything, but they kept adding these rules. And the more I watched that, the more I saw was that what the left was pushing was just more government all the time. And it wasn't working. It just made it very hard to start a new business. So I started reading the conservative media, but they appeared to wanna go to war with everybody and to police even the bedroom, which seemed wrong to me as a young hippie in the 70s. And then I discovered libertarian thinkers. I discovered Reason Magazine. oh oh my God,
0: these people understand
1: this much better than I do. This just all makes sense. And they are so right.
0: Do you remember a writer or an article that really resonated with you early on? Virginia Postel's
1: editorials. She Mm. was the editor at the time and what she made sense, what she said made so much sense to me. Uh, (laughs) I assumed she was a much older and wiser person than I at the time. It turned out she was 10 years younger than <laughs> I. She just understood this stuff long before I did. And that changed my life. I became like a born-again free marketer.
0: Uh, what? When would this have been? I'm bad with
1: with Sometimes dating. it's
0: during the 80s.
1: Yeah, some point during the 80s, I I flipped and I thought, wow, this is just so clear to me. If I just explain this to people, I can show them the light and they'll agree and we'll turn away from all this destructive regulation.
0: Well, that's really interesting to me because there's a, a lot of people believe that it's easier to defend government control over our lives than liberty. And I'm wondering... For you, was there a struggle to figure out how to turn this into a compelling stories, or did it just come naturally from what you had been doing before?
1: No, it's harder. It's easier to say, this guy's a crook. Um, it, it's harder to explain life will be better if we leave people alone, because the improvements are incremental. A thousand little things happening at a time, it's hard to cover. And if I think about the big stories over my career, there was the Vietnam War, and we covered that one pretty well. Um, but otherwise, the media just covers the dramatic event of the moment, the earthquake, the terrible weather, the constant threats that we hype, Ebola, West Nile virus, SARS, Y2K is gonna crash all the planes. But what are the real big differences since I started google facebook uh, cell phones we didn't cover that at all because it mm-hmm. happened in a million places bit by bit and there's just no way reporters can cover that so we missed the big stuff
0: and what was an early story that you did from this new perspective that you had in the value of freedom where you thought okay i got i'm on to something here i i I think i can really tell the story of freedom versus government control in a compelling way
1: one of the first or maybe the first was a story in 2020 that made hugh downs go hmm i hadn't thought of that the things that improved because government let go and it happened to be a year when uh under the Carter administration, they got rid of the Civil Air, the Civil Aeronautics Board's power to regulate airline prices. And the Interstate Commerce Commission's right to regulate rail shipping prices. I mean trucks were taking furniture to California, but they weren't allowed to bring carrots back. So they would come back empty because they didn't have the permits to take carrots. And they repealed these laws as well as price controls on natural gas. The senator from Washington state said, prices are going to go through the roof. But in fact, without price controls, more people entered the business and the price of gas dropped sharply. So all these things saved us billions of dollars. But nobody noticed because it's saving you a buck when you buy something because the price of shipping is cheaper. People don't notice that. But I put this together in a story and that was one of the first ones. What I naively thought was that once I explained this to people, they'd get it. But you get it, apparently. It was just like honey to me. But as I've discovered over the years, some people's brains will just not let this in. My wife is one. I, she's watched these videos. I've argued with her for 35 years. She's barely butched. Whenever there's a new problem, she says to me, look at the New York Times. Doesn't government have to do something about this?
0: What's your take on that? Not her in particular necessarily, but why do you, what do you think it is that makes it hard or perhaps impossible to convince some people?
1: I don't know. There's something wrong with their brains, (laughs) but there are more (laughs) of them than there are of us, sadly. And even they get a little less certain if you present them the other side and they start to appreciate a few of the things spontaneous order can bring. But it's an uphill battle, I really thought we were gonna win and now under trump and these crazy socialist democrats we are losing on front after front with that's one question
0: yeah that's one question i wanted to ask you which is what's your take on the general state of the liberty movement because clearly the two leading parties and sides if you will have moved very far away from freedom What about the people who are advocating for freedom? What do you see as the positives and negatives right now?
1: The positives is that there are more of us thanks to my business now is I make a video every Tuesday and donors and viewers give me money and we reach about 2 million people and you've got reason and the Cato Institute and all these think tanks and you have more people letting know that, letting people know that there is this alternative route, and some passionate young people who get it. But the political parties are just totally in the tank for big government every, and they're pandering to voters. And I mean, think about who they're pandering to you have a podcast, you pay attention to public affairs, but most people don't. I mean, even people who watch cable TV, the constant news channels, which are horrible, but they're paying attention to news. People talk like, well, everybody's watching Fox because the Fox audience is equal to CNN and MSNBC combined but the Fox audience is still on one of their highest rated primetime shows, maybe 3 million people, 330 million people in America. So that's less than 1%. People have lives, they pay attention to sex, friends, how they're gonna make money, movies, music, food. The dieters think about food all the time. It's, it's We're a minority who think about public affairs. And unfortunately, all those people who never think about public affairs every four years, they, they do vote. And the politicians pander that. And what they're pandering to is that natural human instinct problem. Oh, government's got to do something. And the idea that government doing something causes more problems and the reason we have to fix this now is because of that problem that they caused. It requires more thinking, and if you're thinking about your date, uh, or making money, or music, and so many other things, you really don't have time to think that through. Where the interest in it's
0: through. it's a hard pitch, particularly if what you're saying is. I want you to think this through and I think that you should come to ideas that will make you unpopular and outside the mainstream, right? It's a it's a challenging thing to to come to people with that sort of agenda. But that's one reason I was really interested to talk to you because I think one of the most powerful ways, like granted it's a very hard problem, is through is through stories. And of course there's kind of fictional stories which can be very powerful, but there's also, you know, non-fictional stories which is against the grain of most people who do become interested in liberty come from it from a very idea centric way. Like they're the ones reading Hayek and, you know, reading Ayn Rand and reading like dense philosophy. And so they don't tend to just by uh, nature be storytellers. And so I wonder how you think about, you know, cause you're, you're kind of in an interesting space, not straight journalism, but not just outright yelling your opinion at people. What, how do you think of, what you do and what do you see as like things that we could all learn about how to be better, you know, storytellers, if you will, for liberty.
1: Um, just to sort of refine your question, it's true that the young libertarians who are reading Hayek are an unusual group. I am totally into this and I couldn't get through the constitution of liberty. Uh, Ayn Rand, by contrast, is a storyteller and she convinced educated more people because she's a storyteller and i didn't come to it naturally i never liked (laughs) the english courses in school but i fell into this job and that i discovered i had a skill at telling stories as a consumer reporter and making them clear and so when i switched to liberty I just kept doing that. And that's what I'm doing now every Tuesday. And it, it's true. It's not natural. You want to, I mean, I'm appalled by what the think tanks produce and lectures by old white guys, uh, lit as badly as I'm lit right now talking to you. And it's just not going to hold attention of anybody who isn't already obsessed with this stuff. So I approach each story as if the viewer has no interest and no knowledge and think about what can I say to make you think a little harder about this. Last Tuesday's video we did was about getting rid of the drug war. And that's a preachy libertarian topic that threatens a lot of people. How can I invite people into that story? So I start with the story of the moment, which is the protests and Black Lives Matters, and their big gripe is the criminal justice system, which is fucked in America. The lawyers make everything take longer, and it would take forever just from the burden of how many people they have to deal with and how many laws are already written down that you have to honor before anybody gets a trial, so much so that innocent people plead guilty just to avoid waiting years for a trial. Right. And we lock up more people than any other country in the world, crazily. And it would all go away, or most of that would go away, if we just got rid of the drug war. So it's a way of laying out the problem and then saying something dramatic. It would go away with the drug war, which, to my brain, makes me say, well, why? How's he going to prove that? And then you point out, bit by bit, the stuff that over time have made me say oh i hadn't thought of that like how there are no cigarette gangs even though the government says nicotine is more addictive than heroin and there are no more alcohol gangs after alcohol prohibition it's the law that causes the crime and then we go into it and i write a script and i think it's brilliant and we cut it and i watch it and it's horrible and i can't believe how i ever thought it was brilliant <laughs> it sucks And I pull my hair out, and you'd think I would have learned after all these years. Um, And I rewrite it, and I think, oh, now it's going to be great. And it's better, but it sucks again, and I can't believe I thought that would work. And we go through about 10 cuts before I think it's interesting enough to hold a viewer's attention. And... When I started, there were just three channels. So a lot of people had to watch 2020. Now people have a million choices. And if you bore them for a second, they'll switch, click off. If you confuse them for a second, mm-hmm. they'll click off. So every transition from point to point has to be clear, simple, and a little entertaining. And it takes work to get the videos to that point at about 10 edits.
0: Yeah. I mean, I really like how you're thinking about the audience and in, in terms of not assuming interest and not assuming knowledge and the need to be interesting and clarifying because I, th- I think, you know, if you, I come from the think tank world originally and there really isn't that kind of thinking about the audience, the way that a journalist has to, the way that anybody who's not taking for granted an audience that's pre-motivated, like has to really think about. D- did you? how did you kind of formulate your, your kind of connection to the audience, your antenna, for whether this will be clear and interesting? Is that something that you just like, you know, you're, you purposely tried to cultivate or is that something that you think came more naturally to you?
1: I just did it based on what would be interesting to me. And I'm pretty attention deficit hyperactive. I was bored in lectures in college. Other people could sit there and listen to the guy talk for 50 minutes without slides, without visual stimuli. I couldn't. So I figured out things that would interest me.
0: That's funny. I, uh, I have my first novel coming out in early 2021 and a lot of what I think made it good is that I'm a very impatient when it comes to fiction So if I'm going to read something or watch a TV show, like it has to grab me and it can't like, let me go. Whereas I, you know, I can plow through like Mises or or Hayek or somebody when it comes to, to stories, like I'm uh, very much ready to just put it down and do something else. And so I think having that, uh, impatience or, you know, being a hard audience member to win over is a really critical feature to have. Um,
1: and I think you do have it. I don't know you, and but the way you speak so far in this podcast, you make an effort to be clear.
0: It was hard won. i I started professionally in let's see two thousand and six, I guess. And I could barely order a Subway sandwich without stammering. It wasn't an actual stutter, but just I didn't have a very well organized mind. I could write very well when I had time to go over it 10, 20 times. But in terms of actually being able to formulate coherent sentences, that was a huge struggle. And a lot of it was just practice and and then slowing down. Like I felt like I had to rush through everything I had to say or people would lose interest. And I realized, no, they lost interest because I'm plowing through everything I had to say and not being clear. So it was, it was a very long struggle, but I think one of the reasons that I've been successful helping others become better communicators is because I didn't start out naturally good. Like I had my own struggles of putting in the years and putting in the effort. And so a, I learned a lot about how to learn those skills, but B I think people, when they're approaching creative things like writing or speaking or storytelling, there's a tendency to ask, do I have the talent? Did, was I born as one of these chosen people who can you know, be really good on camera or write really good books? And so when they see somebody who they think is good and then you tell them, "You know, I started out very bad, that can be really motivating for them and let them know, oh, it's okay if I'm not good at this moment
1: you've learned not to say, oh, which is what a lot of radio hosts have to learn. I noticed it in local news that some, the star athlete of the moment, Jim Bouton at WCBS would come in and some of them were just natural at doing TV. They could just talk, Ron Swoboda. But the ones who lasted long and had successful careers Were the ones who had to work harder at it and had to learn it.
0: I'm sure you've been pitched by countless potential guests and people who want to get their messages out. When somebody comes to you and says, Hey, John, I want you to cover something I'm interested in, or you, I want you to put me in front of a camera. What are the qualities that are appealing to you and what makes you say, I'm just going to file this guy's email and uh, not pay attention to it from now on.
1: You got any video? You got some dramatic 10 seconds that I can build a story around? It's not enough that you talk to me about an idea. I need pictures. Pictures that are eye candies, a phrase in the business. Then I just listen to the person. If the person speaks in a way that you instantly get it, he's a good candidate. Or she, I think these ideas are much more palatable if you receive them from a woman because men traditionally have been the fat cat overclass. Or minorities. I absolutely, if there's a minority person who says it no better than the white guy, I'll pick the minority just because it cuts through the stereotypes. But if it interests me, that's and they speak pretty well. Sometimes you get people who've had things happen to them and and they don't speak well. And then I've done interviews where I shot an hour to use to pull out 45 seconds. I've pretended to go to sleep to make people shock them out of their drone to try to say how boring they are. I've screamed at them uh, just to make them try to get more passionate back just to get them to tell their story better. I, and I tell them in advance that these are gimmicks I'm doing to help them break through the clutter of television. And if they don't like their response, I tell them, don't worry, I, I'll ask it again. Uh, you don't have to say it all in one long, endless, run-on sentence right now. Let me pull it out of you. And we do it again and again. And generally, I can get usable stuff out of most everyone.
0: That's really interesting. Well, that reminds me of one quality that you have as an interviewer. So, you know, some of your interviews are not friendly attempts to help somebody get their message out. But you're asking hard questions of people who likely don't want to answer those questions. And I wonder how you think about your strategy going into those and if there's any kind of internal struggle of, all right, I have to ask this question. It's going to make somebody squirm. It makes me anxious,
1: no question.
0: By now, I've
1: gotten used to it. And with a hostile interview, I generally will say, look, I'm going to ask you the other side's questions. I doubt these are criticisms you haven't heard before. Um, but I am going to ask you those things. And look, if you don't like your answer, we can do it again. And that sort of lowers some of the tension. And invariably, I'll say, why are you a crook? And they'll give these windy answers. And the advantage I have in in editing, unlike live TV, is I can just let them give their winding, evasive self-service answers answer and then just say it again. Okay, that's very nice, but it didn't answer the question, why are you a crook? And usually the third time you get the a more direct answer that I can use.
0: And how much do you have strategies going involved or strategies formulated going into an interview versus your very, you know, in the moment paying attention to what they're saying and thinking about, I need to follow this up, or that's very interesting, or this is a a promising avenue to explore.
1: No real strategy. But just try to try to listen carefully. Sometimes, I mean, economics, talking to these damned libertarian economists, they can be so tedious. And I will listen half asleep. Like, would I pay attention to this? And then I'll hear a moment where it's clear and I'll perk up and I'll try to ask a follow-up question based on what I just heard, thinking that those little 15 second moments are the ones that'll make a good
0: video. Well, that was one of the most, I mean, it still sticks in my head all of these years later, but I think it was from the greed special you did where you were trying to explain spontaneous order and you're on an ice skating ring and you say, isn't it amazing? All of these people aren't crashing into each other. There must be some central person telling them where to go and how fast and so on. But of course, there's not. It's people making independent choices and adjusting based on, you know, the facts on the ground. And by that point, I think I was, you know, I was pretty young, seventeen maybe. But I had already read, you know, Hayek's uh, analysis of spontaneous order, and I had read writers try to recapitulate it in new ways. But that was the first time I thought... You were a freak 17-year-old. Well, I mean, I was a freak 14-year-old is when I started on this. But that was the first time I thought, okay, everybody should be able to get this. And I mean, analogies, I think, are really an important way of boiling things, complex ideas down. And I wonder, I mean, most people just don't seem to put in the work to think them up. But that seems to be something where if you you know, have a guest who's articulating complex ideas with analogies and stories like that's a gold mine. And I don't
1: claim credit for originating, originating many of these ideas. I would say I've had 10 totally original ideas over my career. The ice skating rink I stole from California economist, Dan Klein, who Uh, wrote about it in a print story. And I thought, whoa, that's an example that would work well on TV. And we got an Olympic champion to sit there with the microphone directing people. And you had eye candy. You had an ice skating rink. We had stuff to look at. And then you go to a school of fish that's beautiful too, or a flock of birds. And these are ways to convey spontaneous order to the lazy listener. Because it's it's sort of a thought experiment and an aha moment to say, if you had never heard of a skating rink, and I told you, I wanna rent this arena and charge people, uh, charge people money, uh, we're gonna flood it and freeze it, I'm gonna charge them to strap sharp blades on their feet and zip around on the ice, and you're going to have no rules except go counterclockwise, people would say, you can't have that. It's not going to work. If I said to you, I have a new fuel I want to introduce, no cheaper than oil, but it'll reduce our dependence on OPEC, so that's good. Um, Trouble is, my new fuel, unlike oil, which is flammable, my new fuel is so flammable, it's explosive. An invisible and odorless and deadly poisonous. I want to pump it into your house. Most everybody says, no, that's just too dangerous. And then I can go to the audience and say, what kind of stove do you have? And it's a 50% chance that the person will say gas. And of course, that's the fuel I was talking about, natural gas. Odorless, then you can only smell it because they add mercantin to it, so you can smell it before it blows you up. Explosive, deadly, poisonous, invisible. And it kills several hundred people a year, but we accept it because it came gradually. And we got natural gas before we got crazy about risk. But it's counterintuitive. And only if you bring it to people in that indirect way does the point get made.
0: Yeah, and I mean, that's a really good example of a strategy that I learned working with Alex Epstein on energy issues, which is what we call normalization, which is when people are just introduced to a risk without any context. It sounds, no, we don't, we absolutely don't want that as part of our lives. And even if you say abstractly, well, everything has risks, no, that's a new unacceptable risk. But if you normalize it, if you put it into the context of risks that we already accept, and then help them see that we're doing that because we get something really valuable that allows us to live our lives better, that then you can start to open them up to, okay, I, I can understand this risk. It's not something new and scary. It's something familiar that we deal with all the time. But typically we allow the other side to present risks in this out of context, non-normalized way. And so whenever you can, you can actually put it in the context of how we live our lives day to day you can make the unfamiliar familiar i wonder you mentioned that you've only had you know 10 ideas uh that were original i'm sure you don't keep an official list but i'm curious if there's any particular idea or segment you did that you really thought like that's that's one i'm gonna remember and very proud of thought up or created.
1: Well, one was the turning point in my career in that I was at ABC doing some libertarian stuff. But as a consumer reporter, a big part of the job is reporting on risks. And I gradually saw that we were hyping every risk and you can't pay attention to everything. So, shouldn't it be the job of a consumer reporter to rank the risks, put them in perspective? And nobody was doing that. We were going crazy at the time over air crashes. They wanted me to do stories on the 10 most dangerous airports or the most dangerous airline. But the differences were fractional. And when we scare people about flying, more people drive to grandma's house and more die in car accidents because driving is much deadlier than flying. So we were committing statistical murder with our irresponsible reporting. So I spent a year compiling a list of what kills people. So I was able when 2020 came in with the next scare story, which was big lighters are exploding in people's pockets, spontaneously catching them on fire giving people horrible burns. They've killed four people over the past four years. And this was true. The story had come from the trial lawyers and there's an evil partnership between investigative reporters and the trial bar in that they are the best sources because they have subpoena power, power of force, to subpoena some company's paperwork. And they look through thousands of pages And have find something that they can spin as carelessness, dirt of some kind, and they just hand it to us, and we get to look like the big investigators and win awards with our exposés of danger. But I had come to see we were just working as tools of these avaricious lawyers, and it was already suspicious. And I had my death list, so I could say, I don't, don't okay, I'll do the big lighters story, boss, but. Look at the wall here, shouldn't we do buckets, ordinary five-gallon buckets? They kill 20 people every year, many more than Bic lighters. It's mostly toddlers who fall into them and drown. It's a big country, a lot of nasty stuff happening to people. Or plastic bags, they kill hundreds of people over four years. Let's do a story on the dangers of plastic bags. And they looked at me like I was callous, and they got Bob Brown to do the story. But I kept pushing them to let me do a show that ranked risks. And they finally agreed. Two producers quit in the production of the story. Oh, wow. And I thought I was going to lose my job and not be able to do, it became an hour documentary. And ABC, to its credit, eventually gave me permission to do it, as long as they use the nightline time slot afterward to have rebuttals um and the boss said i don't agree with you but it's an interesting argument that deserves to be heard so i got to do my show we're scaring you to death actually they made me put a question mark so are we scaring you to death um, about the wrong things and that was a turning point they didn't think it would rate well they said why do you want to do risk assessment do the stuff we know gets ratings, diet, breast enlargement, um, anorexia. And I refused. And then they were surprised that this show got equally good ratings and praise from scientists.
0: That's really interesting. Well, let's let's end with this. I'll ask my best John Stossel style question and feel free to be insulted by that. I would even put it in that category. But John... You know, you did a lot of really good work pointing out these businessmen who were taking advantage of people. And so haven't you just devoted the rest of your career to saying, well, we shouldn't do anything to stop them? Isn't that what the free market really is all about? Or are you just denying that they even existed?
1: That's what I thought. But the opposite is true because... The free market doesn't let them do bad stuff because there's competition. The way to get rich in America is to treat your customers well, to give us what we like. And I could find all these scams as a local TV reporter, but once I got to the national stage, to ABC, it was harder to find national scams. There are some Bernie Madoff pyramid schemes But by and large, they die out. Word gets out. The good companies grow. The bad ones atrophy. Competition protects us better than regulation.
0: John, thanks for everything you've done to promote liberty. And uh, I hope everybody continues watching the videos you're pointing out. I think that they're really magnificent and just a ton of fun. So uh, wish you well with everything else you do.
1: Thank you very much. Good to talk to you.
0: You too. Take care. Bye.